Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Despite alleging an imminent threat, the Trump administration has been unable to defend its rationale for the killing of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis in Iraq. There is no doubt that there were a series of imminent attacks that were being plotted by Qasem Soleimani. We don't know precisely when and we don't know precisely where, but it was real. Well, the president didn't say there was a tangible, uh, he didn't cite a specific piece of evidence. What he said is he probably, he believed. Are you saying there wasn't been. one? I didn't see one with regard to four embassies. What I'm saying is I share the president's view that probably my expectation was they were going to go after our embassies. The Washington Post reports that President Trump has privately shifted to a new explanation. At a dinner with donors at his Florida resort, Mar-a-Lago, Trump reportedly said he heard hearsay that Soleimani, quote, was saying bad things about our country, like we're going to attack, we're going to kill your people, unquote. Trump reportedly went on to say, quote, I said, listen, how much of this shit do we have to listen to, right? Unquote. Trump also called Soleimani the father of the roadside bomb responsible for U.S. combat injuries in Iraq. Well, according to the investigative journalist Gareth Porter, the actual story is far different. The killing of Qasem Soleimani was in fact the culmination of a lengthy provocation campaign involving Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, and the Israeli government, which carried out a number of underreported bombings inside Iraq and Syria in the months leading up to the Soleimani assassination. Gareth Porter is a journalist and historian. His latest book, co-authored with John Kiriakou, is called The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis. Gareth Porter, welcome to Pushback. We have seen over the last few weeks the Trump administration's story about how it came to kill Qasem Soleimani pretty much fall apart before our eyes. You've been doing some digging into what actually happened, what was the real lead up to this assassination. What to you is the context that people should know about how the U.S. came to kill Qasem Soleimani? Right. Uh, it's a very important question. I'm glad you're, you're uh, taking this time to, to uh, give me an opportunity to really dig into it. Because, as you say, the, the uh, idea of the imminent threat as a, uh, an excuse or as an explanation for the assassination of Soleimani uh, has really uh, disintegrated. And it begs the question, okay, what was it that they were really all about here? Um, uh, why did they go to that trouble? Um, why did they uh, go ahead and uh, assassinate Soleimani, knowing uh, certainly that there was some risk involved in that, uh, su significant risk involved in that? And, and so that's why I really uh, tried to go deeper into the background of U.S. policy over the last year or so, uh, really starting starting last uh, summer. Um, and of course, the key person here in regard to that policy is Pompeo, because he represents, uh, Mike Pompeo represents the continuity once Bolton was uh, fired in, um, in uh, August. Uh, he was the guy who was really dominating the, uh, the policy because he had uh, Trump's ear really without anybody else competing with him. And it's been observed that uh, he was really playing a de facto role of not simply Secretary of State, but also de facto uh, Secretary of Defense and de facto CIA head, uh, and really talking to Trump with the authority that went with those roles. And so if you look at what Pompeo was about 
going back even to 2018, you see that he and Bolton were engaging uh, in an effort to, to establish a policy premise uh, in uh, 2018 that uh, really started in September 2018 that would serve as the basis for uh, developing uh, the option of escalation against, military escalation against Iran because it would provide a casus belli. And that, that premise was that the Iranians were uh, trying to, or they were threatening to kill Americans, kill or injure Americans, both diplomats and military personnel in the Middle East. Uh, and they did that by seizing on this incident uh, in September of uh, 2018, where a couple of uh, rockets landed in the green zone in Baghdad, where the U.S. embassy is located. And uh, uh, Bolton and Pompeo immediately jumped on that uh, and seized on it as, as a premise for their uh, future policy, saying that this shows that, uh, that the Iranians and their proxies in Iraq are uh, threatening U.S. personnel. And we're going to warn them right now that if any American uh, is uh, killed or injured or even American interests are hit by uh, attacks by the proxies or Iran itself, that we will go after uh, the primary source, meaning Iran. So that was really the first time that this premise was put forward publicly. And it, it's clear from that that that's the way they hoped they could develop uh, the option of military escalation with, with Iran. And obviously this was, you know, they, they were hoping that they could get the Iranians to do something, that they would, that the Iranians would do something that they could take advantage of. Um, and, and then we, we fast forward to 2019 and the sort of uh, the false crisis that that Pompeo and Bolton created uh, in May, starting in May and into, into the summer with the idea that there was uh, reason to believe that, that the Iranians were threatening American forces and uh, uh, throughout the Middle East, American forces and diplomats throughout the Middle East. Um, uh, this was developed by, uh, not, not by putting forward any uh, documentation, but by leaks to selected media. And the leaks were suggesting that the Iranians were doing various things, such as putting missiles on boats, uh, uh, you know, small boats uh, in the uh, Gulf, uh, and that they were, uh, that there was a directive to Iranian forces uh, to prepare for an attack on American troops uh, in the Middle East. And in fact, you know, if you re read closely and, and follow up on those leaks, you, you find that uh, in all cases, it was there was nothing there that really showed that Iran had any intention of taking uh, action uh, aggressively against or a first strike against any American uh, personnel or interests. Uh, it was consistent with the basic policy of Iran to be prepared for a war that would be started by the United States. And of course, uh, you know, that, that could involve uh, incidents that uh, involve the Gulf of uh, uh, the, the uh, Strait of, of Hormuz, excuse me, the Strait of Hormuz, 
uh, where Iran uh, ultimately uh, is going to have to do something, if, if nothing else works, is going to have to do something to inhibit traffic uh, through the Strait of Hormuz, which the United States has threatened to respond to with military force. So that's, that's all in the background of this. Um, uh, now, in fact, the incident that they seized on uh, was, was quite dubious that it was any Iranian or, or pro-Iranian intention to carry out an attack on the U.S. embassy. And in fact, it happened. Those rockets fell there and they fell in Basra as well, uh, uh, near the airport, uh, the Basra International Airport, in the same 24-hour period, in fact, the same few hours. Um, and, and in fact, this happened at the, at the time when the anti-Iran, anti-pro-Iran uh, uh, militias uh, interests were, were carrying out violent protests in Basra. And in fact, they burned the, uh, the Iranian consulate in Basra. They burned all of the offices of the pro-Iranian uh, pro militias in Basra. Uh, and they closed down Iraq's only seaport, which is near uh, Basra, uh, basically occupying it for a day uh, in protest. So, you know, it's, it's quite possible that the, not only possible, but likely that the, uh, the rockets that landed in the green zone and that landed uh, in the periphery of Basra International Airport were, um, uh, were basically launched by protesters against the Iraqi government. Uh, what I didn't add here, just another detail, which is crucial, is that the Basra International Airport is not simply a commercial airport. Uh, it's also a military airport. It, it's a symbol of uh, the Iraqi government because of the, the presence of the Iraqi military there. So this, uh, again, makes it likely that there, this was part of a protest that was at its high point of violence at that moment. So now we fast forward again to, uh, uh, to later in uh, 2019, and this is the crucial point that I want to make here. We now know that not only did the Israelis carry out a series of airstrikes, uh, both drone strikes and conventional airstrikes against uh, targets of, of the PMU, the Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraq, many of which are pro-Iranian, not all of them, but many of which are, are pro-Iranian militias and who played the key role in pushing back uh, ISIS at the moment where they really threatened uh, not just to occupy Iraqi territory, but really to, to carve out a separate state uh, from Iraq. And uh, so, so the PMU forces are, are very important. They're very large forces. And they are, uh, to a great extent, not completely uh, to a great extent, they are oriented towards uh, Iranian, uh, an alliance with Iran. So what the Israelis were doing here was hitting targets uh, that they claimed uh, were because of the transport of rockets uh, or, or missiles, I should say, uh, ultimately from Iran through uh, Syria to Iraq on their way to Lebanon. They were claiming that these were rockets that were being improved and making them more accurate. Uh, and of course, that, that was true, that there were, there were uh, missiles that were becoming more accurate that were showing up in Lebanon, and they were obviously going through uh, the, the, uh, both, both uh, uh, Syria and 
Iraq to get there. But what we now know is that these Israeli strikes were actually hitting weapons depots. And in one case, at least, there was a huge explosion and, and it was blowing up Katyusha rockets and other weapons that clearly were not these advanced missiles that they were talking about. Uh, they were things that uh, were, were essentially the same weapons that the PMU had been using all along. And, and these uh, strikes were being carried out uh, over a period of uh, almost three months from July through September uh, by the Israelis. Now, the key, the key moment was when this weapons depot was blown up, uh, really very close to a military base where both the Iraqi military and U.S. Uh, troops were stationed. Uh, but the PMU uh, plays such an important role in security that they were occupying uh, a military uh, uh, base, which was basically uh, attached to that base uh, in Balad, Balad Air Base. And uh, so, so at that point, then the, uh, the Kataib Hezbollah and other PMU uh, members, member militias, uh, began to threaten that they would respond if the Israelis and the Americans continued this. And they held the American, the United States directly responsible for these attacks. So this was an important uh, turning point because they were being put on notice that uh, uh, if the, there was a threat from the United States, if they continued to, continue, uh, continued to hit the uh, bases of the militias, that there would be consequences. So uh, now we have finally the December 27th uh, event. That was a, uh, a, a Katusha strike on a military base in Iraq where American advisors were stationed. And uh, that's when the American contractor was killed. Um, so that begs the question, what was going on there? And we still don't know exactly what uh, the intention was, because uh, it's very possible that this was simply an accident or it was not, it was not intentional, that they did not intend to kill an American, uh, an American advisor or an American contractor. Uh, uh, but previously, uh, they had avoided, obviously, any injuries or uh, uh, deaths to Americans. Uh, and only one uh, Iraqi had been killed. That was a, a guy guarding a uh, checkpoint uh, near in the green zone, not too far from the uh, U.S. Ah. embassy. So uh, we don't know exactly why uh, an American contractor was killed there, whether it was intentional or not. But it followed the Israeli uh, series of strikes, which were intended clearly to provoke an Iranian reaction. And that's the key point that I want people to understand, that, that you have this intention by the Israelis working very closely, obviously, with Pompeo uh, to try to provoke uh, Iran into doing something that would justify an American uh, uh, retaliation. And I think that is really the fundamental background of the uh, series of events that followed with, with uh, Pompeo uh, basically convincing con Pompeo and his allies because he got uh, the Secretary of Defense and uh, the Director of the CIA to go along with him, as well as the uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But it was Pompeo's initiative, no question about that, 
Uh, Gareth, let me stop you because I think what you're saying is is really important. And when the discussion of what has happened uh, with the U.S. and Iran uh, uh, takes place, this background you're laying out, which I want to focus on, of these Israeli strikes, uh, not just in, in Syria, but also in Iraq, as you say, I believe there were something like seven or eight Israeli strikes during that time period that you laid out, starting on July 19th. 2019, and so you're saying right. this is, seven strikes. So, so, so you're, you're seven strike between between uh, July and September. So you're, so you're saying, saying that this is part of an effort you think to provoke basically a response that could then justify an even harsher response by the U.S. And let's pause here and look at the the Israeli uh, context. So overall, there's a history a history of Israel doing this, of trying to provoke attacks to justify. And even a far harsher response, the, you know, the, the most, this actually goes back to the 1967 war, where Israel claimed it was fighting a defensive war. But what gets censored from history is that uh, far before that war started, Israel was taking a number of provocative measures, including bombing areas inside Syria. It did the same thing in Lebanon uh, when, it, when it was a war that it waged to try to destroy Palestinian nationalism. It did so supposedly under the guise of stopping rocket attacks from Lebanon. But again, what gets omitted from the history there is that for you know, the year preceding the invasion, Israel was constantly shelling Lebanon, trying to provoke a response. It's done similar things in Gaza as well. And you're saying that it looks like something similar was going on here when it comes to strikes on the PMF inside Iraq, as well as on uh, Iranian allies and targets inside Syria. And put this force in the context of what Israel has been trying to do in terms of its efforts for starting even before the Iran nuclear deal was signed to sabotage the Iran nuclear deal and sabotage basically anything that could lead to diplomacy and better relations with Iran. Right. I mean, basically, we have to go all the way back to uh, 2003, even before Netanyahu, when the Israelis were... uh, basically working very closely with Dick Cheney um, uh, and trying to come up with a strategy that would justify uh, an American attack on Iran. I mean, this was exactly what the uh, the Israeli government and uh, Dick Cheney were all about. And of course, David Wormser, who is uh, somebody who had been very close to Netanyahu uh, in the 1990s, uh, who was uh, one of the people who signed on to that uh, strategy for Israel, uh, greater Israel, to enlarge Israel's control in the Middle East. Uh, he was the uh, Middle East advisor to John Bolton in 2002, and then in 2003 became Dick Cheney's Middle Eastern advisor. And of course, he was telling Cheney, you know, uh, you've got to create an opportunity here uh, for the United States to carry out uh, bombing, that's the way you're going to get people to rise up in Iran and get regime change, which was the ultimate objective. Uh, so, so I think uh, it's important to understand that there's a continuity here for almost uh, two decades uh, uh, in Israeli policy and uh, for much of that time in American policy as well, because that lasted at least uh, from 2003, uh, 2002, 2003, until uh, the end of the Bush administration, at least until uh, Dick Cheney tried and failed to get uh, approval for his proposal uh, to take advantage, listen to this, to take advantage of an incident in Iraq 
where American servicemen would be killed, multiple deaths of American servicemen, and they could blame it on Iran, and that would be the trigger for carrying out a bombing attack on Iran. Hmm. And of course, Cheney's fa uh, failed to get approval for that, and uh, that was in 2007. Well, Cheney got his wish uh, 13 years later. Well, he, he is certainly getting uh, much, much closer to that aim, that's for sure. Um, you know, he's, he, he hasn't gotten the strike on, on Iran itself, but he's gotten something much closer to it, no question. So, so uh, yes, I agree that, that Israel is, uh, has been committed consistently uh, since uh, 2003, and maybe even before that, to the idea of trying to get the United States to sign up for uh, a, a strike against Iran. And of course, that would call for some strategizing to try to come up with a scenario that would make it uh, politically palatable in the United States. So I think this, this whole strategy of, of provoking Iran has a very, very long history. So speaking of making uh, war on Iran politically palatable, let me put you some of the talking points that are put out by the Trump administration and their allies and pretty much accepted at face value, even by Democrats and people in the uh, so-called liberal media. Let's start with uh, this notion that Iran has been responsible uh, for the killing of hundreds of troops inside Iraq uh, with, with IEDs, with uh, improvised explosive devices. Yeah, I know that that is a huge, huge bow wave of propaganda, which has been enormously uh, successful in, in swinging the entire news media around to uh, a period of unquestioning uh, going along with, with the uh, intentions of, of the Trump administration. Then, of course, it fell apart later. But for a week there, you had news media pretty much going along with it. And almost in every case, their coverage raised the the idea that Soleimani had blood, American blood on his hands, uh, with specific reference, of course, to the alleged 600 deaths uh, suffered because of EFPs that came from Iran. So, so let me try to break that down. The the first point I want to make about that is that EFPs showed up uh, in Iraq uh, as early as 2003, and it was the Sadrus who had them. Now, at that point, the Sadrus... And the Sadrus uh, is a, is a Shia, Shia militia. A, 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 Shia militia of the, the, Mah, the Mahdi army, the, the followers of Muqtad al-Sadr, who was a, a dyed-in-the-wool Iraqi nationalist. He would not suffer uh, Iranian influence over his uh, organization. Uh, he did not intend to allow Iran to lord it over Iraq. Uh, he was very much opposed to uh, Iran's uh, having too much influence in Iraq. So why did he have EFPs? He got them from, the, from Hezbollah. Hezbollah had, uh, was, was the inventor of these EFPs. They invented them when they were fighting the Israelis. And uh, they were very successful in using them. And, and the technology was widely spread around the world because of the uh, the Israeli war with, with Hezbollah. And uh, that's why, uh, and, and this, this is going back, uh, back to the 1990s when Hezbollah was, was resisting the Israelis. Uh, uh, and, and so you have uh, the Sadrists getting them. And not just the Sadrists, but you had uh, the 
uh, militias, uh, the, not the militias, but the resistance, the Sunni resistance to the American presence, getting EFPs as well. Um, and, and they were getting them from an international network of people who had the secret of how to make EFPs. It was very common, commonly known. It was not some high, you know, highly guarded military secret. And, uh, and it was very simple technology, basically, as, as well. So, so that's the background of this. Now, you know, the, the number of VFP deaths by U.S. Uh, troops was very low up until 2007, when they suddenly went way up. Why did they go way up in 2007? This was when David Petraeus uh, came in to become the, the commander of U.S. troops in Iraq and decided to target none other than the Sadrists. Um, and at that point, the Sadrists were uh, basically working with Iran. They were being supported by Iran because they were the main resistance force. So it was his, he was, his, his decision to target the Sadrists and force them into uh, carrying out a much higher tempo of attacks on the United States using EFPs. That's why the deaths of Americans went straight up. And, and he did uh, this, why? Because he was empowering the Sunni brigades inside Iraq? No, because he was using them himself. Sadr was using the EFPs. Uh, no, I'm and saying they were Petraeus, the main source of... Petraeus decided to target the... the yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Why, why did Petraeus yeah, yeah. target them? Uh, because they were the main resistance force by that time against the United States. They were the main resistance force. And, uh, and he had two choices. He could make an agreement with the Sadrists and uh, basically arrange for a ceasefire, which would be the premise or the preface to American withdrawal, or he could basically try to take out any Sadrist forces that were de determined to resist the United States. And he did the latter. Um, it was quite stupid, and I said so at the time, and so did other people, including Doug McGregor, uh, but that, that was his choice. And I think he was pushed into that by uh, Cheney and his, uh, his advisor, um, David Wormser. So I think that was why this happened. Doug McGregor, who you mentioned, he was rumored recently after the firing of John Bolton to be in the running uh, as John Bolton's replacement. But certainly uh, Trump has gone in a, in a much different direction. Um, he certainly has. And David Wormser is back as an advisor, by the way. That's right. And, and there was a piece recently in The Intercept by John Schwartz about that. Um, so you have studied uh, Iran very closely. Y you wrote what many people consider to be the definitive book about the Iranian nuclear program, uh, Manufactured Crisis. Can you give us your, your overall sense of what you think drives U.S. policy towards Iran? Why do you think the U.S. has gone to such great lengths for a long time now uh, to, to confront Iran from supporting Saddam Hussein in the 1980s to rejecting the Iranian uh, overture back in 2003 uh, to uh, um, imposing the sanctions and now culminating in this unprecedentedly aggressive campaign by the Trump administration? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's a very important question. And I, I know that it's extremely confusing for just about everybody because it's so difficult to understand. Why would the United States choose to make Iran, which is this potentially enormously powerful country in the Middle East, 
uh, which also has a, a very strong interest in uh, integrating into the global capitalist system. Uh, that's that's been the dominant uh, view of the Iranian government uh, virtually since the beginning of of the Islamic Republic. Why did they choose to make that uh, that state uh, its eternal enemy? <laughs> to make it sort of an enemy which without any uh, uh, way out of of the enmity. And and I've spent a lot of time the last few months uh, writing a book with John Kiriakou which really explored that question. And I think it, it helped me to clarify my own, um, my own understanding of this. Um, and and the, the answer that I would give you is that there are two fundamental reasons. The first is that uh, the United States government, and particularly, specifically, the, the national security state, has, has a very hard time. I would say it's impossible for them to accept uh, a situation where Iran was not a client state because they had had the luxury of a client state run by the Shah, the Shah of Iran, um, for some almost two decades. Um, and uh, they were used to it. And, and uh, it was good for them. They didn't have to spend as much money. Uh, they could sort of manipulate Iran to carry out various policies. And because Iran was an oil power, they also could take advantage of that as well. Now, that came to grief, that, that, that uh, issue of Iran's oil uh, role, the, the fact that Iran was a major oil exporter, uh, caused some problems with, with the Shah later in his term. Uh, but we don't need to get into that. But basically, the, the first reason that I want to suggest here is that the U.S. government's uh, national security uh, uh, state uh, has been unwilling to accept uh, an Iran that is not a client state. And that was clear from the very beginning, because as soon as the Islamic Republic was, uh, was founded, you had Saddam Hussein carrying out an offensive uh, to try to bring it down. And we know that uh, although uh, there's no evidence that the the United States government uh, was was privy to the decision originally. They immediately went along with it. They they thought that could be advantageous to the United States. So the regime change started even before the Reagan administration came into power. But under Reagan, regime change was a very explicit policy. Uh, they they tried various ways to, to figure out how they could overthrow the regime and bring back uh, somebody from the Shah's family. Uh, but ultimately, they weren't able to make it work. But it was definitely in the back of their minds. And so, you know, I would suggest that that has been in the background of U.S. policy ever since 1979. The second reason, I think, uh, that you have, well, it's, it's a combination of, of reasons combined in one, is the combination of Israeli interests and the interests of the, uh, the national security state uh, in terms of bureaucratic interests because those interests have been pretty much aligned for the most part during this entire 40-year period. Um, and, and, you know, the Israeli interests are clear enough. They wanted the United States to help them take down Iran and uh, eliminate it as a, uh, a power that could be competing with Israel to, to uh, uh, be the main, uh, the, the, the biggest power, the strongest power in the Middle East. And the whole package also in, includes the Israeli desire to eliminate any state that 
uh, has enough military power to resist uh, Israel and therefore uh, has uh, the ability to limit somewhat or to deter Israel from freedom of action in the region, which is what it, what it has always demanded. Now, the problem for Iran has been that they do not, they have not disposed until very relatively recently of the military power uh, in terms of missiles, missile deterrent that uh, most powers depend on for that, uh, for that function, deter, to deter a, a major a power from attacking them. So what they've done is to use Hezbollah in particular and also other uh, groups, uh, both state and non-state groups, uh, in the region uh, as allies to help them deter the Israelis as well as the Americans. And, and I think that's, that's really the total package that you have that, that bothers the Israelis. Uh, they, they want to have as little of that as possible. And uh, so I think that they've... You know, they wanted to have regime change very badly. Now, on the other side, going back to the U.S. national security state, uh, I think that uh, equally important, or if not more important, is their need for Iran as an enemy. Because without Iran as an enemy, basically from the 1990s on, they had no excuse for keeping troops in the Middle East. That was the primary excuse that they had. Uh, now, of course, they did fight a war with uh, Saddam Hussein's forces in uh, 2003. They, they overthrew the regime, um, uh, and, and that, uh, that then eliminated the, the need for the anti-Iran uh, the, the anti-Iran excuse very, very neatly. And that, I think, gave even more emphasis to the idea that Iran has to be the enemy. So I think it's a combination of those two interests, which... Uh, have pushed the United States, you know, towards the uh, the, the uh, regime change uh, objective, whether uh, it was explicit or or not. And uh, during the Obama administration, I don't think they were uh, they were really trying to get a regime change, but but they were continuing uh, to carry out the anti-Iran uh, policy in the sense of making Iran. The enemy um, and carrying the carrying out the idea that Iran is the world's greatest terrorist state, which is another major myth that has been uh, created early in the um, uh, the history of of the Islamic Republic. All right, we'll leave it there for now, but come back to you very soon, Gareth Porter, as we continue to cover uh, the state of uh, U.S. Iran relations. Gareth Porter is a journalist and historian. His latest book, The CIA's Insider Guide to the Iran Crisis, co-authored with former CIA analyst Jean Kiriakou. Gareth Porter, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Aaron. Good to be on. 